good, occasionally very poor in south. Rockall, Malin, Hebrides, Bailey. East or southeast, three to five, occasionally six except in Rockall. Mainly fair, good. Fair Isle, Faroes, variable, three or less at first. <laughs> Hello, and thank you for downloading. You're listening to Travel Tales from Beyond the Brochure, a weekly series looking at unfamiliar places across the world and aspects of travelling you may never have thought of. I'm your host, the Barefoot Backpacker, a middle-aged Brit with a passion for offbeat travel, history, culture, and the whys behind travel itself. So join me as we venture Beyond the Brochure. completely different note, and I realise that's a slightly peculiar sentence to start a podcast episode with, you may be interested to know something about why I chose to make a podcast rather than, say, actively promoting my blog or making a YouTube channel. I mean, apart from the obvious, you already know about my laziness and my preference against visual media. I'm talking about why a podcast, specifically, appealed to me. I think I've mentioned possibly all the way back in my first podcast, which I was listening to the other day when I was creating the transcript to put online, and oh my god, the sound quality is a bit here and there. I'm tended to at least completely re-edit it, if not record the whole thing again. I've had the time, I just question the motivation, but yes. Anyway, back in that podcast, I mentioned that I've always had an interest in radio, more so than, say, television, and how I used to listen to it growing up. Well, I lost myself down a Wikipedia rabbit hole the other night about some of the radio shows I've listened to throughout my life, so it's quite present in my mind now, and I just wanted to talk a little about how everything fits together and how I ended up doing a podcast the way I do. What I have realised is that a little interesting is probably the wrong word here. I think I should say what's more telling about my radio preferences isn't so much that I listen to radio throughout my life, it's more specifically what I listened to. And don't get me wrong, one of the strands is fairly generic. The radio was always on in my household growing up. My grandmother listened to it while she was ironing and my uncle usually had it on in the car if he wanted to drive somewhere. Invariably it was BBC Radio Merseyside, but occasionally they'd switch to Radio City, the local independent radio station, depending on the presenter. Independent local radio in the UK was somewhat different in those days. It was genuinely local and kind of mirrored the BBC style of different presenters having different styles, though still focusing more on pop music rather than anything else. BBC Radio Merseyside, for instance, on a Sunday morning, had a programme called Tune Tonic, presented by a chap called Monty Lister. And he'd play, well, I heard big band music, 1950s novelty songs, classic easy listening. I mean, it was a programme more for the so-called silent generation, and possibly even the greatest generation, than for a single-figure generation Xer like me. But obviously at that age, you just listen to what your parents listen to. Fun fact, Monty Lister, who died just under a year ago from this podcast at the age of 92, was the first person to interview the Beatles on the radio. He did so for Clatterbridge Hospital Radio in 1962. He also used to sign off his shows with the phrase, if you're feeling off colour, keep on getting better, which I'm sure I've heard someone else use recently, but can't quite remember who. (laughs) It'll come to me. Anyway, during my teenage years, when my sleep pattern was as much as it is at the moment, that's 4am to 11am, and as I said last week, I used to spend my evenings playing computer games and writing somewhat emo poetry and short stories. Ian, she killed herself! I did so whilst listening to the radio. 
Here, generally, it was uh, local music radio, rather than to my own music collection or anything else. Partly it meant not having to keep changing the album, but also it meant I could just take it in passively background noise that I could use to keep myself alert. Weirdly, I've used both music television and YouTube in much the same way, as a means to listen, not to watch. One might wonder why I don't have an account on Spotify, but part of that is due to my non-mainstream tastes. If I want to listen to an obscure B-side remix of a song by a group from the 1980s that no one's ever heard of, followed by three hours of recorded ambient music from a forest, I'm far more likely to find it on YouTube than anywhere else. The other strand, though, and one that's more pertinent to the way I do my broadcasting, is much more specific. This started presumably around the age of, well, I'd moved house by then and possibly my grandmother had just died, so 12, maybe 13? My uncle gave me a couple of books that his father had had. One of them was a hardback volume of five asterisk strips. The other two hardback books of scripts from a 1950s comedy radio show called The Goon Show. Even if you don't know the series, you may have heard of the stars, Spike Milligan, Peter Sellers and Harry Seacombe, who had very different career paths afterwards, one staying in comedy, one moving to acting, and one hosting Sunday afternoon religious programmes. On paper, the flow of the show seemed quite, quite bizarre and anarchic, and when I first managed to hear a recording of one, it sent me down a whole preference point for radio comedy that has stayed with me ever since. Indeed, comedy in general. I prefer the absurd, the stuff that may not make sense even on the third try, the breaking of the fourth wall, etc., and over the years I listened to more radio comedy, partly at the time. The other radio station my uncle listened to in the car when I was younger was BBC Radio 4, which had several comedy series at the time, like Dial M for Pizza, The Young Postman, and Now in Colour, for example. And partly long after the event, BBC 7, now Radio 4 Extra, will often play whole series of radio comedy stretching back to, indeed, Goon Show era programmes, and allowed me to finally listen to programmes that I'd previously only heard mentioned in passing like Round the Horn, and I'm sorry I'll read that again, and discover some shows I'd never heard of but starred people I knew from elsewhere, Hello Cheeky and The Burkis Way, amongst others, all quite different, some more notable than others. Now, what does all this have to do with my podcast, other than both providing a time-filling introduction to pad out the length of this episode, and ensuring it looks like I'm being productive without actually broadcasting any coherent content relating to the topic in hand? Well, it's all to do with the style of some of these programmes that they had. I'm in no way a comedian, let's get that right out of the way first. I don't do jokes, and I certainly couldn't do stand-up. I mean, my routine about the asexual flag I can make quite amusing to an audience, but that's a very niche subject matter in and of itself. Rather, I'm much more of a presenter. While I try and make what I write somewhat humorous and light-hearted, I'll often try and read it in quite a deadpan way, or at least understated, similar to the way older presenters like Humphrey Littleton from I'm Sorry I Haven't a Clue, or Kenneth Horne from Beyond Our Ken and Round the Horn used to do, the straight man amidst unbridled chaos. What sets me apart from them, of course, is that I'm doing it on my own, so it doesn't quite work. What brings all this to mind right now, of course, is because ultimately this is a travel podcast. Ooh, and of course right now no one's doing much travelling. That doesn't, of course, mean we can't talk about it, but at some point we're going to be in a situation, and I assume you all listen to other outdoor-themed podcasts, maybe travel, maybe sports, maybe, I don't know, car or transport-based ones, where the continual barrage of, oh, obviously we can't go out at the moment, or when this all blows over, or ah, back before the virus type posts, and it's going to get quite similar and repetitive and quite depressive. On the other hand, I imagine if you're listening to podcasts about TV or gaming, they're quite active right now. But bear with me. It's more a case of, if I show you why and how I pod the way I do, then it'll sound clearer when and why I go off into flights of fantasy, like this one, into strange humoured rants, like I do about my mother, or make what appear to be completely random asides, in brackets, like this. 
even in the transcripts. Which aren't transcripts, because I write them first. But you know what I mean. But also, more importantly, why I don't see my pod as being an entirely travel-themed one. While I'm unlikely to ever write and perform a spoof version of, say, The Three Musketeers or something, it is possible that some future episodes will be less travel-based and more, I don't know, something else. Probably not politics, though. I'm not a satirist. In this day and age, we probably don't need satirists. Even Tom Lehrer stopped bothering after a while. There is, though, one other person I do kind of style myself as, and indeed someone else I discovered mainly through radio. A comedian called Mark Steele. If politics were football, England wouldn't have any problems on the left wing with him, despite his bloody-minded love of Crystal Palace. But he also writes books and hosts radio shows about history in local places. But not dry books. Rather, being a comedian first and foremost, he imparts his personality into them. And while he talks about big topics like, for example, the French Revolution, he makes them accessible to the lay audience with humorous asides and an easygoing manner regarding explanations. I think this is how I write, how I pod, or at least how I wish I did. He's not a travel writer or broadcaster, but he definitely concentrates on places and events like I do. Take a listen to any of his Mark Steele in town recordings and you'll kind of get what I mean. As much as anyone is, I think he's the sort of person I'm trying to emulate in the way I come over. Maybe. Who knows? I don't know. Anyway, the other reason for that overview of BBC Radio History was because I've not done much this week to talk about. I've hardly left the house. Been to the local shop once, twice, I don't know, I don't remember. It's a question of how regularly I run out of bread, really. I always go for thick slice, so it's more texture, but a loaf goes down quicker. I did go for an early morning run on Easter Sunday, though. I had this rather naive idea that 7.45am on a bank holiday Sunday would be fairly quiet at the best of times, as pretty much literally nothing opens on that day anyway except, well, pubs. And even they're closed during this lockdown. Except it wasn't quite as quiet as I'd expected. A few seconds onto the main road and had already been passed by four cars. On the rest of my run, which was about four miles, relatively short one this time, but still mostly hills, I saw far more non-dog walkers than I'd imagined. Like, who goes for a casual walk in the suburbs at that time on a Sunday morning? Still, it was quite a pleasant run and I didn't get stopped by the police this time, despite being passed by at least two police cars. I also bought beer, which is impressive when the pubs and shops are closed. See, one of the pubs in Sheffield City Centre, the Red Deer, I've been there before, they do some good food in that place, including deep-fried cauliflower. They had draft beer that they needed to sell, so I bought two two pint cartons of it and a couple of bottles. It was a takeaway order. They offered free delivery. Bizarre shopping experience for an Easter Sunday at the best of times, but needs must. We won't talk about the rest of the week. It's not been great for my mental health. One thing I have done, though, is created a Patreon page. There's not a lot on there as yet, and as I was waiting to create my next podcast episode before advertising and populating it, woohoo! But I do have one Patreon already. Hello, Joe. She's a good friend of mine in Edinburgh who's promised me beer, amongst other things, if we ever meet up again, and she was helping me out with some testing and sense-checking of the subscription tier levels and the offerings, etc. It's still quite weird to think that people would willingly spend money on my content, but I think that's a mental hurdle I'm just going to have to get over. Over the course of the next few days, I'll have a think about what to include on there. It's not like behind-the-scenes content is very interesting, and there's never outtakes or extra material from my pods. So... I was contemplating literally blogging, talking about my feelings, but I don't know if that's a bit too intensive. Having said which, when I was doing the rest of my podcast and writing it, I realised there was a couple of things I could put in as extra content about different islands in the Outer Hebrides, but we'll come on to that later. You can subscribe to my Patreon. Level starters, little or £1.99 a month. Most people use round numbers on there, but I'm British and we don't do that sort of thing because we're special. Hashtag marketing 101. So, to the subject of this pod, as I mentioned, the Outer Hebrides. 
I'm going to do a follow-up pod about Scotland in general, uh, encompassing more of my experiences of my trips there last year. It's a big country. Dreams stay with you like a lover's voice fires the mountainside. Stay alive or something. And on my walk through it last summer, I did go, you know, I visited quite a lot of it. Mostly, in fact, mountainsides, though obviously I didn't have a lover's voice firing me through them. The Outer Hebrides themselves weren't part of that walk. It was just the fact that I'd never been there. The walk finished conveniently close to the port town of Oban, and I had no idea when I'd be back this way again, so I thought I'd take the opportunity to go even further west. It's a part of the UK I didn't really know a lot about. On many of the road atlases when I was growing up, they were assigned a page at the back end, just before Orkney and Shetland, and tended to have a different scale to the rest of the country. The reduced size meant there was far less detail shown. It suggested that the mapmakers didn't think there was much of relevance over there, and put it in more because they had to, than because they felt people would find it useful. There's about 70 islands in the archipelago, of which 15 are inhabited. The total population is around 26,000, or similar to that of Kirkby and Ashfield, the town I normally live in. As many of those inhabited islands are linked by causeway, and much of the land at the edges is low-lying and heavily indented with locks, what's the difference between a lock and a fjord, anyway? It's often hard to tell where one island ends and another starts. The main ones are Barra in the south, South Uist, which I always think looks a bit like Chile, Benbecula, North Uist, Burneray, and the oft-forgotten Harris and Lewis, two named islands on one otherwise unnamed landmass. And the boundary between the two sections is not where you imagine it is if you look at it on a map, which, despite being the third largest island in the whole of the British Isles chain and constituting both 71% of the landmass and 76% of the population of the Outer Hebrides, is not an island many people outside Scotland have heard of. It looks a little like a tree growing out of a plant pot. The only other place I'd come across them was, oddly enough, on the radio. Hebrides is one of the areas around the UK that gets mentioned in the four times daily cultural icon that is the famous shipping forecast. And Stornoway, the capital, largest town, it's on Lewis, obviously, is one of the coastal water stations in the same broadcast. They always thus seemed like a bleak, windy, isolated place at the edge of the world, where strange, mythical beasts outnumbered people, and where I wouldn't survive without a thick woolly coat, possibly made out of some local mammoth. It may not altogether surprise you to learn that on the hottest day ever recorded in the UK, Thursday the 25th of July 2019, when it reached 38.7 degrees Celsius in Cambridge, I was on the island of Herta, out in the Atlantic Ocean, wrapped in a coat, getting blasted by a strong wind, about a 4-6 gale, very damp, with the temperature recording about 17 degrees. Even a few days before, while staying in a hostel on Bembecula, the heat map on the TV's weather forecast had the whole country covered in orange and red, even up to the northern tip of the mainland at John O'Groats, except for the Outer Hebrides, which were green bordering on yellow. Yet this was a minor aberration, the only stereotype that really held true. I mean, I imagine in the middle of winter it's not a terribly enjoyable place to be stuck outside in. Parts of the island group are on the same latitude as Alaska, but it does benefit from the Gulf Stream, so it's not quite Winterfell. Side note, Winterfell is actually further south in terms of filming location. In the middle of summer, however. Now, there's an urban legend that the Thailand Tourist Board, in their literature advertising the beaches along the Thai coast, at Kai Thai apparently, accidentally used picture of one of the beaches on Burneray, and no one involved noticed. Burneray is a small island lying between North Uist and Harris, and is at the end of the main spine road up the island. You need to catch a ferry from there to Harris to continue your voyage. Despite its size, it could be divided into three sections. You've got the road and the village in the east, farms in the centre, and the beaches on the west and to an extent the north. The farmland's quite dull in all honesty and merely serves to separate, by just over a mile, the bulk of the people from the stunning expanse of sand and dunes. 
This means that although one of the main draws of the island, the beaches are fairly lightly trodden, which of course makes them all the more appealing. Except on the day I went, one was virtually the only person there because of torrential rain and strong winds. Summer, eh? Bernaray is also notable for having a bay known locally as Seal Bay, for um, fairly self-evident reasons. There's lots of sea life in these parts, in general. There's a large statue of playing otters at the ferry terminal for Eriskay on Barra, and indeed many of the causeways between the islands have a beware of otter signs. Also, on one of the ferries that I took, I overheard a family saying that the last time they took that particular ferry, they saw dolphins swimming by the boat. As an aside, there's also lots of birds, but I know nothing about that, as anyone who's ever travelled with me will know. Indeed, my hiking companion Becky would regularly stop to take photographs of different types of birds and say things like, I've always wanted to see a golden plover, and I'm like, it's a bird, it's got wings, that's all I can tell you. The best sites for birdwatching are way out in the Atlantic Ocean by the St Kilda group, but any of the main islands are a good second call as they're the first stopping point for both Atlantic and Arctic bound birds. Frequently spottable birds in the area are, and here I need to check Wikipedia, corncrakes, gannets, kittiwakes and guillemots, amongst others. I have no idea what any of them look like. But back to ground level. Many of the islands have beaches, mostly on the western coast. Even Dower Benbecula has a couple of small ones tucked away by bends in the roads. And a couple on Harris, Luskentire most notably, are of exceptional quality. One even has a registered campsite nearby, just be careful of the wind. But the other island I was specifically aware of for beaches is South Uist. Now, South Uist is the second largest of the Outer Hebrides and runs around 22 miles from north to south. The main Hebridean spine road runs through the centre of it, and it seems like many people just travel up it in their camper vans or on their bikes, both of which are legion here. Small legion, like one that had been on the wrong end of a barbarian invasion, but a legion nevertheless, and don't venture off-piste. This is a bit of a shame, as running pretty much the entire length of its west coast is a wide sandy beach, separated from the rest of the island by a chain of sand dunes. Getting access to the beach is pretty simple. Find a road or track running west from the main road, and eventually it should reach the sea. Its location and sheer length means you can always find somewhere on it that's pretty much deserted. Indeed, I strolled along it for an hour and didn't see another soul. Or soul. It's very much a chilled barefoot sort of place. Barring one distant helicopter, at least. It's very much a beach to live out any castaway island fantasies. The water's pale blue, the sand is soft, bright yellow and fairly pristine. The combination and the lack of people make it feel like you've actually found your own tropical desert island. Just without the palm trees. On that note, actually, I was recently told that the most northerly pine tree in the world is on Tyree, one of the islands in the Inner Hebrides, but pretty much the next island south of the Outer Hebridean chain, so not far away. I've never been to Tyree, so I don't know how true that is. Maybe I'll have found out by the next episode. Caveat. This is the North Atlantic Ocean, so beware of that before you go for a skinny dip. Behind the beaches are the sand dunes, and behind them, and this is especially true on South Uist, is an environment unique to this part of Scotland as a whole, the Macher. It's a Gaelic word, so therefore I'm probably not pronouncing it correctly, though Wikipedia tells me means fertile plain, but it's used in a more general sense to describe the grasslands on the landward side of the dunes. They tend to be sandy stoils, understandably, be relatively alkaline, and be suitable for a limited number of crops, mainly types of oats and barley, conveniently, and it's also a great place for wildflowers to grow. Consequently, the fields by the dunes look like carpets of colour. This machair exists across most of the islands, but due to its sheer size, it's most obvious on South Uist, where it provides a lovely setting to walk through if you're fed up of sandy toes. The other side to machair, though, is its low-lying nature and its propensity to flood. This is seen at the north end of South Uist, but more prominently across the whole of the island of North Uist, which is dominated by multitudes of small lochs of random shapes and sizes, making the whole area look like a floodplain. 
Indeed, part of the spine route in these areas is built on a series of causeways straight across the jutting locks, which makes it really tricky to know where the island genuinely ends. It really does feel like a flooded planet. But of course, there are also hills. These are small islands, and this is Scotland, not Kiribati. They're not going to be almost completely flat tropical atolls. The Jewel Island of Harrison Lewis is the best bet for all of your get-outside needs. Despite its size, it consists of mainly four or five main roads and a lot of sheep. Lewis is a lot more rugged, but most of Harris is mountainous and relatively high. The highest point in the chain is Clisham at 799 metres. Listener, I did not climb it. Harrison Lewis is also, as an aside, notable for the specific rock that makes up the bulk of that island. It's known as the Lewisian Nice. It's spelt G-N-E-I-S-S and pronounced Nice, which is nice and is amongst the oldest rock in the world. Some of it's about 3 billion years of age. Given that the world itself is only 4.6 billion years old, or if you believe the locals in these parts, 6,000 years old, but we'll come on to that later, we're talking about rock that really takes you back to the start of the Earth, pretty much. It's a form of granite, and it's also amongst the hardest rock that exists. And this whole combination makes some of the roads on the island quite spectacular in terms of setting, where they've bashed the road through the rock, and the rock almost overhangs the road. South Uist, too, is surprisingly mountainous. If you spend all your time on the beaches of Macher in the west, you may be forgiven for thinking that it's a flat, wet grassland. In this case specifically, the high points on South Uist are all in the east, culminating in the 620-metre-high Ben Moor. Listener, I did not climb this one either. So what did I climb? Surely I must have climbed at least one. Well, embarrassingly, given my previous adventures up the Pennine Way, where I clambered up mountains of over 800 metres with a heavy backpack, the only island I knowingly reached the highest peak of was Ben Becula. It's not the most exciting island in the chain, and it's quite low-lying, but it has the advantage of being both relatively small and very central. This means that you can get a pretty good vista of the Outer Hebrides in general from its highest point, Roval, at a massive 124 metres. It's a pretty easy trail up, if a little boggy in places, which meant I climbed it barefoot. Coming down, I met a couple of people on the way up who wondered if this meant I was on some kind of pilgrimage. The only problem being is that it's understandably a little windy at the top, as it's the only exposed place on the whole island. Bembecula, I'd describe it best as functional. It doesn't have quite the beaches, nor the scenery, nor indeed much of the history of some of the other islands. What it does have is a remarkably large airport, some ugly houses, and an odd road sign with a tank on it that says, no military vehicles beyond this point. It's the regional army base, with a community to match. Due to an unusual aspect of Sunday trading law, it's also a very useful point to stop over at during a weekend, when it has the most northerly open shop. Given that the vast majority of the population live north of Benbecula, this may cause an eyebrow to raise. See, religion is still quite strong on these islands, and for unclear reasons, there's a dividing line between Benbecula and North Uist. South of this line, stretching down to Barra and Vatasay, there's a very strong Catholic tradition. North of here, from North Uist up to Harrison Lewis, the dominant religion is Protestantism. But not the kind seen down in England, the casual, what religion are we? Oh, we don't have one, just so, just tick Anglican type. Oh no. This is the evangelical Protestantism, the thou shalt not commit adultery pulsifer, DUP style Protestantism, who believe in the word of the Lord, and that the Sabbath shall be kept holy. And by holy they mean no business, or indeed pleasure, shall take place on the Sunday, which must be kept respectful. There are no buses. No shops are open. No hotels are open, because checking in a guest is counted as a work activity. If you'd arrived on Saturday, you'd fine, but don't expect dinner. Only one petrol station is open, and that's only because it takes card payments. Though I did hear a rumour of a second petrol station now doing the same thing. You're not allowed to do sports or games. 
They've even been known to close children's playgrounds and lock up the swings in a twisted mess. It took a great deal of outside pressure to even make the ferries operate, and even they get picketed. For a long time, Harrison Lewis was effectively cut off from the outside world on a Sunday, so woe betide you if you fell ill or your waters broke. Listener, neither of these things happened to me, obviously, which is just as well. Religion, of a sorts, has always been strong in these parts. That, plus the relative isolation and strong Celtic tradition, means the Outer Hebrides are a good place to indulge in all of your hippie pagan fantasies. Stonehenge? That is to prehistoric life what Peggy Portion is to cake shops, all style and no substance, and expensive to match. North Uist sees a couple of ancient sites. One of the oldest, if indeed possibly one of the oldest still standing buildings in Europe, is the remains of a chambered cairn called Parpa Langas. It stands about 35 metres up a hill called Ben Langas, on the southeast of the island. Although a burial site for an apparently important person, extensive grave goods have been found in the area. The cairn itself was used as a communal meeting place for several centuries. It's a pretty good site for it in the sense that it'd be visible from quite a way away over the fjords and floodplains. Until recently it was even possible to go inside one of the chambers, but the roof of the entranceway gave way a couple of years ago. That it took so long to collapse is testament to ancient builders. Everyone I know who lives in a house built in the last 30 years really hates them. About a kilometre away, and a couple of thousand years closer, is the atmospheric and spiritual Pubble Finn. I'm not sure that's how you pronounce it. I'm not an expert. But it translates as Finn's people, or Finn's tent, and is a reasonably large ancient, between 1000 and 2000 BC, stone circle on the east coast of the island. Many of the stones are still in situ, although it's less easy to notice as the site is fairly overgrown and the stones kind of meld into the heather. That said, in its heyday it must have been an impressive location, as from it you can get a good view over the sea. A much clearer stone circle can be found on Lewis. This, of course, is where you'll find a site called Callanish, one of the most complete sites in the British Isles. Indeed, it's often compared with Stonehenge in its provision. While it's not quite as complete as that site further south, it's certainly quite an impressive place. Plus, of course, here is not only far less crowded, but you can also wander right up to the stones and admire them as they were meant to be. It's also free. There's three sites at Callanish in total within a couple of kilometre walk, but most people stick around the largest and most complete known in the literature as Callanish 1. There's also a small museum here that gives you a brief potted history of the site, its rediscovery and stone circles in general. The initial circle was constructed initially around 2700 BC, though they were changed over the centuries afterwards, not just added to but moved around a bit too, before being abandoned around 1000 BC. Although the knowledge of them remained local in the years since, they ended up being naturally swallowed by peat, not a euphemism, and were only re-excavated in Victorian times. Elsewhere in Lewis lie remnants of more recent history. A little way north of Callanish is a site known as Duncarloway. This is an example of a broch, or Iron Age dry stone building, common in the Isles. Dating from maybe around 100 BC, initially it seems to have been used as a house with several floors, livestock below out of the way, but also providing heat upwards, then a living area, then a sleeping area. Over time its use changed and it may have been used as a fortification or a lookout post. It lies on the hills overlooking a bay in the Western Sea. All that remains now is the basic walls and framework, though it's still one of the most complete examples of a broch to be found. Further north still, and two millennia afterwards, is a museum dedicated to the black houses that were a common form of housing over the last couple of hundred years. They're generally long buildings with thatched roofs and no chimneys. The smoke from the hearth dissipated through the roof. You can imagine how that made them feel inside. Divided into two or three rooms, and while some people nostalgicise about them, they were quite pokey and unhealthy places to live. 
People were rehoused from the black houses here as recently as the 1970s, and the building's preserved as a testament to recent culture. One of them is now a small hostel, so you can stay in one to get the full authentic experience. Obviously, I didn't. The islands as a whole are full of other tidbits from history. Carinish in North Uist, for instance, is the location of what was allegedly the last battle fought in the British islands with bows and arrows, in 1601 between the Macleods and the Macdonalds, and the Macdonalds won. Parts of the battlefield have distinctive names, like the Ditch of Blood. Carinish is also home to the Church of Holy Trinity, a church of some regard and possibly once even a monastery or college. Although now in ruins, there's still much of the framework of at least one building left, and you can certainly visualise how atmospheric it must have been to be spiritual here. Further south, and much more recent, within living memory indeed, although not mine, Eriske is the site of the famous shipwreck of the SS Politician, a cargo ship that was due to sail between Liverpool and Jamaica and ran aground here on the island in bad weather in 1941. Ah, but I hear you say, this is wartime. What makes this particular shipwreck notable? Well, mainly its cargo. As well as generic goods including motor and plumbing parts, and a suspiciously large amount of banknotes, several million pounds in today's currency, the ship was carrying over 300,000 bottles of whisky. Given that this is Scotland, during wartime rationing, you can probably guess what happened next. The local customs officer was not amused with the locals' unofficial salvage operations, and with the reluctant local police in tow, went on a crusade to both recover the whisky and charge those involved with theft. His view was, as they hadn't been legally purchased, no duty had been paid on these bottles, and they were still before the property of the ship's owners. To prevent further issues, and because official salvage attempts ended up failing, he ended up having the whole ship blown up with dynamite. The event was used, soon after the war ended, as the basis for a novel called Whiskey Galore by Compton Mackenzie, an English writer and actor who'd made a home on nearby Barrett in the 1930s. As an aside, though from Hartlepool in the northeast of England, he became an ardent political activist in Scotland and was one of the founders of the SNP. Interestingly, the SNP are really popular up here in the Outer Hebrides, and it was hard for me to go down any stretch of road without seeing a Scottish flag sticker on the lampposts or things like that. And a couple of years later, the novel was filmed as an Ealing comedy. Unsurprisingly, I've not read the book, nor seen the film. I'm such a cultural heathen. Bottles of whisky still turn up from time to time. Indeed, the pub on the island is named after the ship in question, and has much memorabilia relating to it, including a couple of authentic bottles behind the bar. Due to the corks rotting and seawater getting into the bottles, the whisky is now undrinkable, but it's still a talking point. I just mentioned Barra, and this island is home to one of those pub quiz question facts that make you go, really? It's to do with its airport. It's the only airport in the entire world where regular scheduled flights land on the beach. You'd probably have thought there'd be an airport in the Caribbean or on some Pacific atoll in Kiribati or somewhere, but apparently not. One of the issues with the Outer Hebrides is that many of the islands are rocky and undulating. Finding enough space on any of them to build a runway is pretty hard, and this may indeed explain why Ben Bekula was chosen as the army base and airport, being one of the flattest of the islands. Yet relying on the ferries to get you to and from the islands is risky as the weather is pretty unreliable. Indeed, on the day I left the islands and went back to the mainland, which was the day after the hottest day recorded in the rest of the UK, eh, a couple of the ferry routes in the south of the region were disrupted due to the high winds. The solution on Barra is to utilise one of the beaches as an airport. The advantages are that it's a naturally flat, hard surface that needs little upkeep. The disadvantages involve the tides, because the flight schedules are affected by the high tides and the changing of them. There's also a limit on what size planes that can land on it. There are two flights a day, to and from Glasgow, operated by 20-seater propeller planes. 
This isn't an airport for an A320. It's a bit like being in Vanuatu. The airport itself is a small building on the dunes, most of which is given over to a particularly well-regarded cafe serving homemade cakes and sandwiches. The check-in counter feels much more like an afterthought, a window on one side of the cafe room. The cafe is incredibly popular with tourists, who often aren't flying, but want to take advantage of either the cafe windows or the road and car park outside as a place to watch the planes arrive and depart. Discussions amongst them suggest they'd love to fly into rather than out of the airport. Today, however, they've mostly been arriving by ferry, either from nearby Eriskay or from the mainland at Oban. You'll notice I haven't talked a lot about how to get around the islands, other than that there are causeways and a couple of ferries. Well, there really isn't a lot to tell. The Spine Road runs from Eriskay to Burnaray via the Uists and Benbecula, and there are regular, if infrequent, minibuses that run up and down it, veering off to serve the main settlements. That's about it. The minibuses have two settings, almost empty and completely rammed, depending mainly on the time of day and whether it's a school holiday or not. Harris and Lewis have similar buses that route around the island there. There's also a footpath and cycle path that extend down the full length of the archipelago. It's the Hebridean Way, about 160 miles long. And you know, it's quite tempting. But first, the Southern Upland Way in the Scottish Lowlands. And I'll talk more about that and Scotland in general in my next episode. Until then, don't go hiking till the virus is history. And if you're feeling off colour, oh. Thank you for listening to this episode of Travel Tales from Beyond the Brochure. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, don't forget to leave a review on your podcast site of choice. I'm pretty bad at that sort of thing myself, so I will understand perfectly if you don't. Travel Tales from Beyond the Brochure was written, presented, edited and produced in the Kirkby and Ashfield studio by the Barefoot Backpacker. Music in this episode was Walking Barefoot on Grass, bonus, by Kai Engel, which is available via the Free Music Archive and used under the Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 International Licence. Previous episodes of this podcast will be available on your podcast service of choice, or alternatively go to my website, barefoot-backpacker.com. If you want to contact me, I live on Twitter at rtwbarefoot, or email me at info at barefoot-backpacker.com. Until next week, have safe journeys. Bye for now.